You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to episode 10. Our guest for today is Patrick Langrell, Director of Campus Ministry, Lecturer in Philosophy and Theology, and Officer for Engagement and Public Affairs at the Institute for Ethics and Society, all at the University of Notre Dame. But before we get into the interview, if you have any questions or would like to discuss anything you've heard on the podcast, or if you've got a suggestion for who I can interview, then send me an email to the usual Victory One email address or to hello at rachelasimpson.com. So today we chat with Patrick Langrell about growing up in a Catholic home and developing a love for study and theology throughout his teenage years. Patrick tells us about how he went on to be a young spokesperson to the media for the 2008 World Youth Day, how he founded Theology on Tap, and about lecturing and speaking publicly on controversial issues like stem cell research and the same-sex marriage debate. He talks about the need for respectful ways of approaching an in-depth public discourse around issues, a model he calls reasonable disagreement. Patrick also shares about his own personal faith journey and his hopes for the future. So here's my conversation with Patrick Langrell. Well, I grew up, uh, I guess for most of my life in Dremoyne, you know, a little suburb, uh, about five minutes from the city, nice stones throw away. Uh, but I spent most of my weekends at, uh, by the beach in Manly, which is actually where I live now for the last couple of years and really enjoying it there. Uh, but sort of in the middle of that, I also lived for about three or four years in New York City when I was working uh, over there. So I sort of I get back and forth between the States and Australia. So sometimes I feel a little bit caught between two worlds, but I'm living here now working full time in, in Sydney. Great. And what is some of your early memories from growing up? Oh, gosh, well, as I mentioned, I guess I sort of headed to the to the beach with the family uh, each weekend. And so most of my early memories would probably be just sort of you know, dawdling around the sand, trying to find crabs between the rocks or, or bodyboarding even or boogie boarding. But, you know, as, as scripture says, when we, you know, when we, when we were children, we act like children. And when we grow up, we put away childish things. So I put away bodyboarding and I went on to real um, surfing, uh, stand up <laughs> surfing. So I, I matured from that, from that infant stage. Uh, and yeah, still manage to do that quite often these days. Nice. Do you have a sort of early or first memory of God or of religion that stands out for you? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to sort of point to one uh, moment or one distinct memory uh, that I have. You know, usually it's more just it's more just the case that I remember I grew up in a in a household, a sort of a faith-filled household, one which which uh, we took our our Christian Catholic faith really seriously. We'd often go to church each week um, and praying together as a family was a big part of how I grew up. So I have many memories of um, sort of getting together each night before we go to bed with my parents and my brothers and my brother and sisters and and praying quite regularly. So those sort of just more sort of um, you know, embedded normal aspects of, of a sort of young um, faithful life is what I have memory of um, particularly rather than any sort of distinct one sort of moment in particular. Right. So you come from a big family? Yeah. Yeah. I've got um, uh, two sisters and one brother. Um, one of my sisters oh, goes, me, I'm the oldest, not necessarily the most maturest, uh, <laughs> but myself and then um, my sister Jessica, who's a postulant, which is um, sort of basically the sort of the first stage of discerning a call to religious life to be a sister. So she's with a community in the United States called the Sisters of Life, who are like many other religious communities, but they take an additional fourth vow. So, you know, most, some of your listeners may know that some, uh, you know, people into religious life take three vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Well, the Sisters of Life take an extra fourth vow, which is a, a vow to protect and enhance the dignity of human life at all stages. Wow. Um, so they help a lot of women in crisis pregnancy um, uh, situations over in the States. And so, yeah, so Jessica's a postulant with them. Uh, and then my other sister, um, Lauren, sadly, she passed away a couple of, of years ago. Um, but she was by far the, uh, the brightest and the bubbliest uh, of us all and was a sort of aspiring actor and theatre studies major. Uh, and uh, we all actually studied here at Notre Dame University, where I now work and where I'm still finishing my studies. And uh, that's where my uh, the youngest, Thomas, uh, is, uh, is as well. He's uh, studying here at Notre Dame, doing a law degree and, and an arts degree as well. 
So there was a stage actually for a, about a one semester where all four of us were overlapping and studying together, oh, which wow. was which was quite a fun a fun time. How nice. Going back a little bit earlier, did you enjoy school? You're obviously quite a deep thinker now. Is that always a trait that you had? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say so, actually. Um, I mean, I, I, look, I did enjoy school, probably not, uh, you know, <laughs> for all the, the reasons that the school would be interested in. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was actually called Mr. Satisfactory uh, by my parents because for most <laughs> of my uh, school year's life, I'd be getting C's, you know, C equals satisfactory on all of my you know, term reports. And it was only really, and I didn't really have any interest whatsoever actually in philosophy when in sort of secondary school we started doing some basic units in philosophy. I just thought it was all kind of airy-fairy and just, you know, a lot of chin-scratching type stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really only within the last couple of years of, of high school that I um, well, started to actually apply myself seriously to my studies. But I started applying myself because I started really... Um, enjoying learning um, and that wasn't just in any one particular field but uh, but I loved biology I loved uh, English uh, you know ancient history I was just fascinated by these subjects um, and how that the more you understand a particular field the more it sort of makes sense and different elements of reality start to hang together in a sort of coherent comprehensive worldview and there was something about that at that early stage that I found appealing to me and I really sort of look back now and I see sort of the beginnings of just a basically a sort of a philosophical mindset, which is nothing other than just basically being you know, deeply thoughtful about something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that sort of the, the early stages of that happened in my latter school years. And they certainly continued and took a real sort of upswing in, uh, in university years. But yeah, I certainly wouldn't say that I was sort of some sort of deep thinker, you know, for mm. most of my school life, I was probably like a lot of other young people just enjoying a good time and trying to get yeah. through the grades and get a good UAI, uh, but uh, but that's changed a little bit since then. I'm grateful for that. Do you think something in particular sparked that change in your later school years? Well, apart from my really bad results and a sort of, you know, kick up the, the backside from my tutor and, and from a couple of teachers, but I think I actually, no, it was just more, well, actually, I, one sort of turning point was I actually topped the class in one, in the, in the religion uh, test, and I'd never topped <laughs> the class before mm -hmm. and I sort of enjoyed uh, the satisfaction that came from coming first in the class and something first time something I'd never felt before and I thought actually that wasn't too hard to do if I, I just sort of applied myself for that and why don't mm -hmm. I sort of really apply myself to the other subjects that I'm doing and I'm just sort of coasting through um, and then once I got over the slightly more selfish nature of just enjoying the satisfaction of coming first um, in that subject I really started to enjoy um, you know learning and understanding things for its own sake not just for any sort of you know instrumental value it could get from you know from coming first or things like that uh, and that that really sort of you know set me off on a, on a different trajectory um, in all those different fields and particularly in 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 religion or in ethics more generally you know just understanding why we do what we do um, and really what is a what is a good life consistent and what um, relationship our own sort of reflections on that can have and how they can be complemented and deepened really and clarified by by Christian uh, revelation. You spoke about that, you know, Christian faith has been something that's sort of been throughout your whole life, but was there a moment or a time where it became more of a reality for you personally? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't spoken about this too much or given sort of personal you know, testimony or some sort of story, but uh, there was quite a, a while where I was sort of living, I guess what you could call a, a pagan sort of, you know, lifestyle. I was, you know, just sort of enjoying whatever came to me. I just, you know, uh, drank whatever I wanted, you know, just sort of basically ordered uh, people to do what I wanted to do. Um, and that period lasted um, for about two weeks when I was born and then I was baptized at two weeks old and I became a Christian. <laughs> uh, and then I knew as a, you know, I'm not going to say that I still wasn't ordering people to, to give me food when I was two weeks old, but uh, but that was a very real moment of change uh, for me. I may not have been fully conscious of it, but what that baptism did um, was something real and it made me a member of the Christian community, a follower of, of Christ. And then ever since then, I've been trying uh, all through the grace of God and through my own very um, average and often failing efforts to live up to that and to grow um, in holiness as much as possible through God's good grace to conform myself more to Christ. 
Um, and so that's, that's probably the, the one point I could say, certainly a reality. And then that reality was made clearer to me and sort of deepened the more I understood and tried to learn how to live that out of my own life. Mm. I wonder if you'd um, have any reflections on, so in some Christian traditions, you'd get baptised as an adult or perhaps as a teenager versus as an infant. Mm. So in Catholicism, can you speak to the significance or the importance of being baptised as an infant? Sure, yeah. Well, part of what baptism um, does, we know, is it removes original sin, the original sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, the sin that passes down through each generation uh, that we know that Christ's new covenant came to, to break, to offer a way of, of, of cleansing ourselves of that stain and being entered into a new Christian family. And that gift of, of baptism um, was as it was in the, I mean, certainly for many of the apostles who, when they were, um, when they met with Christ, were at an old age. But certainly um, there's many points throughout, uh, well, a couple of points throughout Scripture, and fairly very much a part of the early Christian tradition, as, as it was pointed out, I think, in the Didache, which is the most earliest Christian sort of document that we have after the Scriptures, um, of infant baptism, of the idea that this great gift, this great gift of um, of being baptized is is something that should be extended to all um, and that it doesn't uh, matter so much whether they're fully conscious of it um, but the gift of what it does is wiping the stain the wiping the stain of original sin is something that we would want everyone as possible to participate in and that part of that means you know that infants would receive that as well as uh, adults who come to who want to enter the Christian faith when they're older um, but it's very much a gift that we, we sort of want people to have and then to be able to experience and deepen their knowledge of the faith as they go on throughout life. Very interesting. You were part of World Youth Day, the Catholic event in 2008 held in Sydney. Can you talk about your involvement there and the significance of that event? Sure. Well, World Youth Day um, is basically an event that happens every three or four years um, in a different spot around the globe. It was. It was founded by uh, Pope John Paul II, now Saint John Paul uh, II, uh, who was uh, Polish, uh, originally Karol Wojtyła, Father Karol Wojtyła, then became a university professor, sort of taught in philosophy and helped many married couples um, and, and young people learn about how to sort of get through difficult times in life and then became Archbishop and then Cardinal and then, and then Pope. And he thought it would be an opportunity for the young people around the world to come together to celebrate their common faith in Christ and to worship God. Um, and so these events, which have largely sort of maintained a similar uh, type shape as the years go on, see anywhere from, you know, uh, I think it was around half a million young people around the globe who came to Sydney in 2008 uh, to you know, four or five million, as is expected in the upcoming World Youth Day in Krakow in Poland, which is Pope John Paul II's hometown. And this one will obviously be um, sort of led by Pope Francis. Uh, so I, I was involved in World Youth Day in Sydney. Uh, prior to it, I was in, involved in the corporate affiliate department. So I was helping uh, the World Youth Day office relate with uh, federal, state and local governments and branches in sort of sponsorships and, and VIP type events around the side of it proceeding to it. During World Youth Day itself, I had a much more fun job, which was uh, working with uh, a number of the different media companies, uh, as well as TV um, channels, 60 Minutes, Channel 9, SBS, uh, in being a sort of spokesperson. I was one of the sort of, you know, happy-go-lucky uh, 17, 18-year-olds who would sort of, you know, uh, do two-way cross pieces live from, you know, Barangaroo, uh, wow. where we had the uh, opening uh, arrival with uh, the Pope, uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, so, you know, I had up until that point no experience in front of the media, so it was quite entertaining and enjoyable uh, doing it. I, I, have, I have refused to watch one of these little shows of my own appearances because I think I would just, I would, you know, uh, cringe very much <laughs> watching my little bouncy self jump around the camera. Uh, but it really was a, a powerful moment for me and for, for many of my friends. You know, I'm, I know many people who um, have, have sort of met their spouse at World Youth Day or who really discerned that they were being called to the priesthood mm -hmm. or entered religious life soon after. And it really was a graceful moment. And I think that's something that happens when you just bring so many people from so many parts of the world you really do realize the the, the, the universality of, of the faith. And that's what 
you know, we understand when we, um, it's one of the senses in which you understand Catholic, being, you know, the faith being one holy Catholic and apostolic, you know, that we mentioned the creed, the idea that it really does reach to the ends of the earth, um, to all people, that, that the Christian faith is not something that is a sort of a, a regional thing or a territorial thing or a sort of just with this particular community, but it really is God's covenant with all mankind um, and the extension of that and his reach. Um, so that was really sort of bolstering because there's many times when, you know, as a, as a young person of faith, you can sort of feel like, uh, am I alone in this or is it just me and my area or my friends who are doing this? But when you really come to see that there are people all over the world who believe this, it can really bolster um, and give you a bit of a shot up the arm of sort of enthusiasm and, uh, and sustain and build upon that already um, existing faith. And did you find, like, outside of just the encouragement that it gave to you and your friends, did you see um, kind of a follow-on result for after the event in, in parishes and things like that? Yeah, certainly. There's been, I know there's been a huge increase in, in young adult ministry all throughout the country since World Youth Day. Um, uh, and, I mean, the, the, many people went to World Youth Day prior to the Sydney ones. So there was... Uh, uh, ones, one before was in Cologne in, in Germany uh, but since then uh, there really has been a rise in not just young adult ministries but a whole different range of events so there's a big conference that takes place every year here in Sydney called Eyewitness that gets around four or five hundred young people I mean it's sort of a World Youth Day similar type themed uh, conference up on the New South Wales coast um, but that's just one example of, of many many others uh, Theology on Tap which is an event that I founded uh, the year before World Youth Day has also continued since then, so it's now and it's about it's coming up to its tenth year of running, uh, mm. and it happens once a month in a, a pub in the city and regularly draws about um, two or three hundred people as well um, to listen to a you know speaker speak on an engaging aspect of the Catholic faith for about twenty minutes and then thirty minutes of Q and A filled with a lot of social time after. Mm. Um, so there really has been a number of, of things that have, have, have flown from this, not just individual vocations sort of realised and acted upon, but, but larger sort of communal projects and initiatives. Um, and we hope that'll continue um, much further beyond. Mm. So I think people would be interested to hear about Theology on Tap. So how do you find the response of young people engaging with Catholic theology? Yeah, I think it's been it's been really really interesting and really engaging. We've had uh, we always get a certainly we get a lot of the the usual the usual suspects, the usual Catholics who go along with different events. But then there's also a lot of um, you know, I guess you call lapsed Catholics, you know, Catholics who sort of you know they've grown up Catholic, but they haven't really uh, been engaged in some particular way, or they've sort of drifted away a little bit. Um, and then find the idea of, I guess, going to a pub and meeting other friendly people and listening to an interesting talk quite, quite, you know, engaging and interesting and just sort of perplexing at least first. Because usually a lot of people sort of think, well, if it's a church event, it's usually run inside a church or in a parish hall. And, and so some people tend to have those sorts of, you know, blinkered, you know, stereotypical visions of, of, of the way how sort of church is supposed to be done. Um, now we don't run obviously church services in pubs we just hold talks and social gatherings there um, but we really do get a broad range of people we get plenty of um, of, of, uh, of Christians from other denominations coming along uh, plenty of agnostics of people who sort of openly describe themselves as atheist or just sort of interested inquirers um, and many of them just find theology on tap as a sort of safe fun comfortable space in which they can just hear something really interesting it sort of stirs their thoughts a little bit and then they can feel free to ask a question they're not going to be in a place where people are going to sort of prejudge them for asking us you know a supposed silly question or not you know in line with the official opinion suggestion mm -hmm. and i think that sort of atmosphere is is fantastic because many of us uh, even you know those of us who are practicing christians often you know wonder about some aspects of the faith and want to try and understand some of the difficult parts even more and so having a place where those questions can be aired and you can hear a, you know, a good speaker address them is something that I think helps everyone, not just the person asking the question. Mm. But it is interesting. I mean, we had our 60 Minutes to a full episode on Theology on Tap and World Youth Day back in 2008. It screened on the Sunday night of, at the end of World Youth Day. Um, and it was a, a, a wonderful segment because the, the, uh, the crew were just uh, 
this is the 60 Minutes Channel 9 crew, were just fascinated by the idea of Theology on Tap, that, that, that large numbers of young people would come to a pub and would want to hear something mm. about the Catholic faith and, and Q&A. And they just assumed, I think, that, uh, you know, it, it was just basically an excuse for young people to get drunk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so one time they set the, I, I had the produ- one of the producers speak to me after and said, you know, we had a camera set up on the bar uh, to just capture footage of young people going and buying alcohol because we thought this would be great. You know, we'll sort of, re- we'll sort of really uncover what's going on. <laughs> uh, and he said, you know, the bar was packed. This is during the World Youth Day week. We had something like close to 2,000 people uh, attend this, this, this event. And we had, you know, the pub was so large, we had to have different aspects of different halls and different rooms feeding the, 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 the tour through as well as outside to just take everyone in. And they said, we had to stand at the bar filming for 20 minutes before the first person bought an alcoholic beverage. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were like, I mean, and that's not to say that no one was buying alcoholic beverages, they certainly were, but that they picked up such a sense of joy and yeah. and vibrancy amongst the youth there that they that they thought, you know, sort of, or they sort of assumed, I guess, might only have been produced by large amounts of alcohol and young people in one place. Yeah. But it just showed that there was a real sense of joy and peacefulness and fun uh, that the Christian life has and that getting together in those sorts of settings is in no way incompatible uh, with deepening our understanding of the faith. Mm. And so they really uh, enjoyed the Theology on Tap uh, events and uh, and thankfully to that we've sort of got known to a lot more people as well. Yeah. And if people in Sydney listening want to go along, they Google that? Yeah, just type yeah. in Theology on Tap Sydney and all the information will come up. But it's on Facebook as well. We usually host those events uh, every first Monday of the month. Um, at a place called Le Pub, which is a French Parisian pub in the Sydney CBD on the corner of King Street and York. So usually 6.30 p.m. on the first Mondays of each month. But best to just sort of, you know, like the Facebook page and we can send you more information about that. Great. You're also the Director of Campus Ministry at the Uni of Notre Dame. What does that role look like? Well, basically it involves... um, coordinating a range of events, Bible studies, talks, conferences, um, retreats, uh, initiatives aimed at basically helping uh, grow the heart and mind of both staff and students uh, at a Catholic university. Um, Now that doesn't just mean that we're of interest just to Catholics. We have uh, plenty of um, Christian students here who are who come along to our events who are really interested in our Bible studies um, and get involved more generally in our discussions on relationships and healthy living. Um, and it's, so it's really just a way of, of, of giving people alongside their curricular studies and their um, you know, sort of professional uh, career aspirations, a way of integrating all the different components of, of their personality and their character. You know, we're not just sort of intellects, basically, just sort of walking around trying to learn information or people on some sort of career track. No doubt we all are in some way, but there's more to us than that. We have emotional lives, you know, romantic lives, spiritual lives, moral lives. Um, and the university years, you know, which people might be here for three or four years, are just a great time, we think, uh, to try and help bring a bit of life to those other aspects of, of, of everyone's character and personality so that they leave this place a stronger, maturer person and, and, and hopefully uh, with a really good knowledge of uh, an appreciation or at least respect of the Christian faith and the way in which it can impact for the, for the great good on all aspects of their life. So currently you also teach in philosophy and theology and are an officer for public affairs at Notre Dame. Are you able to speak a bit about those roles? And I think people would be interested as well if there's any specific interactions you've had or issues that have come up that really stand out in your experience. Yeah, so I, I, I sort of juggle a few hats here at the university. In addition to working in, in chaplaincy and running campus ministry, I do a bit of teaching for the School of Philosophy and Theology as a lecturer in the Logos program. The Logos, as many of your listeners would know, means uh, it's word, the word, um, and it's usually referred to, to, to Christ, um, the incarnate. Um, and so really what that goes to show the Logos program is that the word, Christ, is imbued and the order and reason of, of Christ and, and so the understanding of the world is imbued in, in everything and that we can understand that. So so students who, are, who do the Logos program uh, select units in a whole variety of uh, areas of philosophy, ethics, and theology. 
Um, and that's compulsory for all students, no matter what the degree they're doing. So I, I teach basic sort of areas of ethics and moral philosophy to undergraduates from all the different schools, medicine, business, uh, the arts. And uh, I teach unit natural law, one in faith and reason, uh, and divine law and human law. And then the other hat I do is I, I sort of put on is uh, Officer for Engagement and Public Affairs for a research institute here at the university called the Institute for Ethics and Society. And that sort of looks at the interplay between contemporary moral and ethical issues and social and public policy and tries to bring a, uh, you know, a Christian Catholic worldview and, and what sort of perspective would it have on some of those contemporary affairs. Uh, so those are the few of the things um, that I'm involved in. I guess some sort of general observations that I've, I've had um, from that. Well, one thing that's really become clear in the modern world is how difficult and complex some are the ethical issues that we all face in society. Yeah. Uh, whether they be over debates surrounding same-sex marriage, embryonic stem cell research, immigration, you know, you name it, they've become not only complex to deal with, but increasingly shrill. You know, the, 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 the level of discourse, the way people talk about these issues has often become quite difficult. And with that increase in difficulty and both complexity of the range of issues that we're dealing with, I've also noticed uh, a sort of decrease in our ability to think through these issues in a common shared moral way. You know, there's been certainly a, a much commented on breakdown or fragmentation of the way how people understand ethics and morality. Um, and I think that breakdown in that sort of common shared way of understanding how we go about making public social decisions as a community um, has made, you know, this sort of intersection, this gap between increasing difficulties of, of issues to deal with and then decreasing ability to actually deal with them has led to the sort of, uh, you know, situation we find ourselves in now, which is one I think where when people disagree on social issues, they find it just impossible to understand why someone could come to a different opinion than them. Mm -hmm. the, the assumption is either that they're wicked or stupid, you know, you, but you take the particular issue of same-sex marriage, you almost have people on both sides thinking, you know, you'd either have to be wicked, evil, bad, you know, uh, let's, let's say homophobic, bigoted, that sort of thing, to take this position, or just ignorant, you just don't know what you're arguing, you're silly, um, uninformed, uh, unaware, right, this sort of thing. And I think you can see that opinion is held on both sides of, of that debate for different reasons. And I just think that, you know, that, that sort of situation is a really bad situation. Um, it often leads to uh, people sort of polarizing themselves into sort of different communities, uh, seeing the other or the other side as the enemy or as an alien mm -hmm. um, in some way. And uh, I just don't think that's good for public discourse, the way we talk about things. I also think it makes us blind really to, to other people and to other people's perspectives. Um, now that doesn't mean I think that we have to sort of believe in some, you know, sort of relativism, the idea that look well, each to their own and everyone's their own beliefs. Uh, I, I don't think that's right. It's obviously wrong for a number of reasons, apart from back to just sort of, you know, something can't be both true and not true. And, you know, majority opinion just can't settle whether something's true because, you know, it could be a different majority opinion the next day and that would be a bit silly. Um, but there's got to be some way of reviving that sort of common shared way of, of talking about social issues. And that's part of what I hope some of my teaching and others here at the university can do is to give people the tools for thinking through complex ethical issues um, and understanding people who disagree with them so that they can disagree civilly and, and in a way of friendship mm. in order to try and reach a common ground on, on whatever issue is at stake. Mm. So if I'm hearing you right, you're sort of saying there's not so much a respectful and in-depth dis public discourse on these issues. If there were to be, what, would, what do you think that would look like? Well, I think what it would look like would be certainly a little less heat and a little bit more light uh, in mm -hmm. terms of the way we talk about the issues. Uh, if you take the same-sex marriage one uh, as an example, as a case point, it's obviously being discussed a lot. Uh, we've got the plebiscite uh, coming up in the next year or so. Uh, you know, certainly at the moment, you know, uh, one side is, you know, the sort of quote-unquote traditional side is quoted as to be sort of, you know, an outdated, 
sort of Christian, religiously inspired, uh, uh, in some cases homophobic or bigoted view. And then you can sometimes have the same-sex marriage side, uh, you know, pilloried as a sort of, you know, completely thin sort of, you know, emotional, uh, you know, just sort of laissez-faire, sexual libertarian sort of view. And I think when you start to pit those sides and those labels, um, you really do no one justice. I think it's fair to say that there are really good reasons for holding views in support of same-sex marriage. And I think there are really good reasons for understanding marriage to be between a man and a woman. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I think that uh, that the views supporting same-sex marriage are right. I happen to think many of them uh, are wrong. Uh, but I can see the reasons why some people would hold them. And I think part of having debate about something is being able to enter into the perspective of someone who disagrees with you, to be able to understand their reasons even be able to articulate those reasons for them and then to show them why you think there are other reasons that show a more convincing and complete view, right? And so I think part of that just involves essentially listening to people um, and trying to characterize their views as best they can. So when it comes to complex ethical issues, um, you know, I try and read the best that's been thought and said um, from people who take a different view from myself and then from people who also take a similar view to myself, so as to be able to learn from both sides, to find out what may be true in their view and what may be not, and then to come to an even stronger view. And I think that's the case because if you believe that what we're all after is the truth about the matter, about what marriage really is, mm -hmm. then you can join with your interlocutor, your, your opponent, your, your person on a, who takes a different view, in that common search and finding out what the truth really is about mm -hmm. marriage. And when you do that, then you can start to see people who disagree with you as, as collaborators, as basically mm. helpful aids in searching for the truth. And I think when you show that sort of respect for someone uh, and they know that there's that respect there, they're much more willing to listen to what you have to say rather than just sort of, you know, ramming down, you know, the neck. So this is what I believe and this is what I think and just sort of trying to poke holes in everything that they say. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, the more they know... Uh, that you're willing to listen to them and they're willing to care about what they have to say, then the more hopefully they'll be willing to, to listen to you. And so I think that sort of model of uh, reasonable disagreement, of realizing that we live in a world of plurality of views, but there's going to be people who disagree with us. And then trying to do the best uh, with that is a much more helpful way than just insisting upon our view without trying to understand others. Wow, very interesting. I think... Um yeah, I had a similar reflection thinking on the um, euthanasia debate because I think both sides, um, for and against, want death with dignity. It just depends what you believe that looks like. That's right, yeah. I mean, mm. it, it's, it all depends on you know, what you mean by death, what you mean by dignity, and, and the different sort of competing understandings of dignity that are at play there. Uh, and, and that's a, a, a complex area, and it's one in which there are lots of thought and lots of arguments and lots mm. of aspects of history and culture and law that are all wrapped up in these discussions. So I tend to think that there's, you know, on a lot of difficult issues, it's very easy for us to sort of look for a, a knockdown argument for, you know, a sort of three-tiered, you know, syllogism that we just sort of, this, therefore that, therefore this, you know, we sort of want to know that. But I think the more we understand these issues um, and the more we understand the context in which they arise is that it's not just certain ideas about dignity or certain ideas about marriage that sort of affect the way people understand things. It's certainly that, but it's also larger uh, events that are happening um, historically, events that, that really shift people's understandings um, about things. I mean, if you just take the example of the, the 60s and 70s when it came to sort of the sexual sphere, uh, it's certainly without a doubt that, in you know, thinkers... Um, uh, like, uh, like Foucault and, uh, and Hugh Hefner and things like this, you know, brought about really <laughs> quite bad ideas about um, our sex, sort of sexual romantic spheres. But it's also the case um, that around that time with the onset of certain technological things like contraception, that it just became a fact that people, it was much easier for people to be able to separate the consequences of, of sex from you know, procreation from sex. And those realities, those sort of historical events, did change the way people understood how to enter into romantic relationships and what sort of the costs of them were. 
Um, and so it's important to see events like that or even just larger ones like First World War and the Second World War as you know, just sort of hammering people for so for so much through the despair that they brought about and the mistrust that that brought about in people's understandings of leadership and of institutions that people just sort of felt like they needed to sort of they needed a few decades of just to sort of relax to sort of be free of the you know supposed prohibitions of the previous era, and so it's important to understand social change not just in terms of ideas you know which is something that you know public intellectuals and philosophers tend to really be really big on. But also in understanding it as, as, as certain events and historical processes as, as happening around the same time. Uh, and I think that's important to consider when discussing issues like marriage, because you can clearly point to certain events, the 60s and 70s, there'd be unilateral no-fault divorce, artificial reproduction, um, all these technologies and larger events as shifting people's perceptions of marriage to the point now that it's, understand, to, it's understood by a large number of people today to be mainly about sort of uh, you know an adult relationship of affection and romance um, and intimacy and that's what marriage is and, and marriage is the state's validation of a couple's romantic relationship and you can see how it gets to that point through not just sort of certain ideas that philosophers or public you know sort of commentators have brought about but through some of these historical uh, events you can see how that shapes quite differently from you know what they would often say is the traditional view which tends to see men and women, sexual complementarity, uh, parenting, family life is basically what's marriage got to do about. Um, and you can see those sort of different understandings of, of marriage at play. Um, but I think it's helpful, as I, as I sort of just mentioned, to sort of see the interplay between ideas and events in, in where we get to where we are today. So I'm interested to hear your opinion. Do you think that the the Catholic Church and perhaps the church more broadly has a responsibility to to engage in social discussion, but more than social discussion, perhaps legal and political discussion on these moral issues or yeah. on any issue? Yeah, I think uh, I think all of us uh, are are required. I mean, even if we just sort of take away the the Catholic or the Christian thing at the moment, all of us are in an obligation as a matter of justice to, um, and also for the sake of the common good to contribute in whatever way we can um, and whatever is appropriate considering on who we are to issues that matter and that deeply affect us. Um, and some of those issues are more important than others um, and we should give them more attention. Um, in terms of the Catholic Church, uh, you know, it has, it has a long tradition of reflection thought, prayer, wisdom on essentially what the good life consists in. And all of that has been given to us by Christ, by the prophets of the Old Testament, by the, the early Christian thinkers, by the philosophers, theologians. And so there's such a treasury of wisdom in, in the tradition of, of reflection and thought through time. And as Catholics, uh, you know, we really try and understand that so as to be able to contribute in effective ways to the world that we live in. Um, when it comes to policy, politics, uh, the legal sphere, it is much more the role of the laity to be significantly involved in those efforts. That it's, being the, not the priests. Yes, yeah, so not, not the priests and yeah. the bishops and the Pope. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, not a good thing when, you know, when a Pope tries to run for some office in parliament. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, there's, a, there's a healthy, a healthy secularity, a healthy separation of church and state, which doesn't and shouldn't be mistaken to think that religious believers don't have a role in getting, in, in getting involved in issues of state. It just means, first of all, the state doesn't establish, you know, some sort of religion that all people are required or forced to be a part of, um, uh, or sort of separate or, or sort of break down those divides more by having clergy sort of run for office. Uh, but it does mean that there are certain spheres where politics works in which is basically that question of how we ought to order our lives together. That's what politics is all about. And then the sphere of the church, which is, well, how do we order our lives together so as to bring about and to bring about and hopefully participate in the kingdom, right? The kingdom that Christ came mm -hmm. to, to establish. Um, and so that work of sort of furnishing and, uh, and rebuilding the, the, the world in the sort of political and legal spheres is very much a task that all lay people, the sort of non-clergy, non-bishops, 
uh, are required to do. And, it's, and that's why there are many Christians involved in politics and law and culture aiming to um, turn things around where they've gone astray and how to sort of keep things in line and prevent them from getting worse. Uh, and that's a task I think that we're all, we're all called to do. But I think also that many non-Christians would also recognize and are clearly involved in. Um, and it's that sort of common, that common effort that uh, is the nature of politics. And for people who would say that, you know, people's religious views, be them Catholic or, you know, whatever, don't have a place in in political thought, would you say that it's the same as, as atheism or capitalism or any other school of thought, that it, that it is relevant? I think it is. I mean, I think it's, uh, it depends, it depends the way we, we speak about things. Um, you know, I think when, when you're speaking with people who don't share your Christian faith, it's generally the most convincing account to appeal to them on certain issues in ways that they can understand. Uh, and so within the Catholic tradition, Catholic Christian tradition more, more broadly, I guess, that there's always been a way of talking and a way of understanding how we live, why we live that way, and what's good for human well-being and happiness. Um, through our own rational, you know, reasonable reflection. Um, and, you know, St. Paul alludes to this in the second chapter to the Romans where he said that the Gentiles, right, the non-Jews, um, who didn't have the law, who didn't have the Ten Commandments sort of, you know, uh, written out for them, uh, had the law written on their hearts right, or written on their consciences. So the Gentiles who didn't have the revelation of the Old Testament, of the moral law, still knew that killing people was a wrong, that lying was wrong. And so it's by appeal to this sort of these common human uh, uh, values that we can also try and appeal to people who don't share our faith. Um, now that doesn't mean that everyone needs to be an expert in knowing how to do that. And sometimes it's easier for some people making these cases publicly than it is for others. And I don't think that that should mean that religious people who aren't quite as articulate in, in knowing how to express that in non-religious uh, sort of language should be barred from public life. I don't think that's that's the case at all. But there should be a, a willingness there to, to offer public reasons um, for for what we believe in. Um, and I think that's important as well because, I mean, certainly from the, the Catholic Christian tradition, we believe that there's nothing that, uh, nothing that we believe about what we ought to do about morality that isn't already also fully accessible to us if we think as hard and as deeply about it as possible. That even you know a non-christian could if reflective and open and honest enough come to the same position as christians come to on morality just by thinking it through now that doesn't mean that it's very easy it's often quite difficult in fact that's probably one of the reasons why god chose to reveal many aspects of the ten commandments to make it definitively clear what really was bad for human flourishing and what really was good for human flourishing um and so that's really uh important to do that but it's important that we, we know how we can appeal to people based on premises that they would accept. Um, and I think that differs depending on who you're speaking to. And really prudence, you know, our ability to sort of be wise, will, uh, which we pray for and we try and hope to advance in as we get older, will show us not just what to say to someone, but how to say it, what tone to say it, when would be the right you know, time to say it, uh, or even whether you would be the right person to say it to someone. Sometimes it might be better for for someone else or a closer friend or someone in a different relationship to speak to someone about a certain controversial or difficult topic. And that's something that we, you know, we try and grow in over time. Great. And so bringing it back a bit to your personal story. So for you, your faith and your professional world intersect and they require you to think about spiritual things in quite an intellectual way and in a public way as well. I'm wondering if there are any ways um, in which you specifically engage your faith on a more personal level. Yeah, look, it's easy sometimes to uh, to think of the faith in certain sort of compartmentalised ways. Uh, you know, you might think that some people would say, oh, they have a real sort of intellectual, philosophical faith that's sort of sometimes a little bit cold or dry. And then there's other people who seem to have a much more sort of emotional faith. Uh, it's much more passionate, deeply personal. Uh, and I think that you know, at least the more that I've come to sort of try and understand things and, and read more and pray more, that really God 
really wants us to be integrated in all these aspects. That it's not about whether we should have a sort of a heady faith or a heart faith, but God really wants all these different aspects of our lives to be joined together. He wants us to have a mind that's that's reflective, that's inquisitive, that's um, questioning. He wants us to have a heart that's uh, emotionally connected with others and, and sympathetic to the difficulties that other, that are going on in other people's lives. And that really part of maturing as a, as a person, as a Christian, is bringing all these different aspects, our, our deep personal, emotional, and our intellectual lives together. Um, and so I think that's something that I, I strive to do. Um, when it comes to, I guess, some more personal aspects of, of the faith, well, certainly for me, uh, you know, my, my time spent in just private prayer, um, with God is is something that's uh, is quite personal, and a lot of the times I try and oh, no, I live by the beach, and it's it's you know it's hard. Well, it's, sorry, it's not hard actually to pray when you know, I think when you live um, near water or near the beach in particular, or such a, a beautiful beach. Um, and a lot of those moments give me the sort of time and the place, um, and really the the quietness, uh, the sort of stillness to be able to to sort of get out of the hustle and bustle of, of juggling three different types of jobs uh, and just to really think about, you know, how, how's my day going? How's my life going? Um, what can I do better? And how can I try to ask him to have the grace to be able to do that better as each day goes on? And that's always an, an, ongoing, an ongoing task. And there are difficult moments. There are sort of periods of dryness um, where it often feels like prayer isn't you know working or not quite giving the results that it sort of it should have um, but all of those moments are uh, periods of times to be endured um, and uh, and that's probably something that I I think many people <laughs> many people go through it's not as if the faith is always something where you're on a high all the time yeah. in fact if it was I think there'd be something you'd probably want to look at you know why is it the case that sort of the faith is is so high because so much of of the Christian life as evidenced by the life of Christ um, wasn't you know on an emotional high there were some really dark difficult moments and of great grief and loss um, and I think uh, part of the human condition is coming to grasps with that common frailty that we have as humans, the fact that we need uh, someone to put us back together uh, and that there is someone who, who has done that and who continually does that with us. And, uh, and I think that's something that I try and sort of understand more each day, but something you can never fully, fully grasp, at least in this life. Mm, yeah, true. So bringing it out a bit broader again, um, for the Catholic Church, it's coming under a lot of scrutiny at the moment with the Royal Commission into the child sex abuse. Do you have any reflections that you'd share with us on this situation? Yeah, look, it's a it's a really difficult time. Um, difficult first and foremost for the victims of of sexual abuse, um, and I, you know, my prayer has been throughout this time first and foremost that the the truth of of what has happened uh comes to light yeah and then that there's you know real healing for for, for those who have gone through gone through this you know and that that healing doesn't happen overnight it, it takes a very very long time um for that to take place and that's uh you know so i i, I really i really pray for the victims i Pray for the families who've been affected by this, because the, the effects don't just affect one person; they they, they, they ripple and they, into many other areas. Um, and so, I pray that the commission, as well, really uncovers and and brings to light what happens, so that we can make any necessary you know changes, so that things like this never happen again. Um, and it's really something that. You know the Catholic Church, as well as many other churches and really institutions, because the Commission is a inquiry into institutional responses to, to child sexual abuse. So at the moment, uh, you know the Cardinal Pell is being uh, interviewed uh, from Rome about this. But really, there's many churches and many institutions who are being examined through this time, and it's a very difficult period. But it's something necessary that needs to happen, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward for for this. 
for this period really to be sort of for a sort of you know a purgation, a cleansing, um, and a moral renewal and a, a moral purification, um, so that people can really grow from this and that the church can heal. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm wondering in terms of what you personally believe, if you could sum up the core of that for us and how that forms your worldview. Sure, in uh, 25 words or less. <laughs> um, well, basically, I'd, I'd sort of describe myself as, a, as an Orthodox Christian um, of the Roman Catholic flavor, and that since I hold to the teaching of what Christ gave and what's been handed down from Christ to his apostles. And that stretches in terms of, of both doctrine, in terms of the creeds that are being given to us, and then in terms of practice, in terms of how we how we sort of live our lives. Um, and so I really see, uh, you know, I mentioned before in the program the idea of, of Logos, of the world, of the word of, of Christ, who, who identified himself as, as the word and as the way and the truth and, and the life. And I really see as Christ basically being at the center of, of all that I believe and that everything that I try and understand and grow in knowledge of, whether it's some area of philosophy or theology or even art or beauty, is in some way aspects of Christ, aspects of, of God. And that means that life is sort of a you know, limitless, never-ending possibility of coming into greater and deeper relationship with Christ. Um, and so in my particular life, a lot of that is involved in in learning uh, in the, sort of the realms of philosophy and ethics and uh, in, in how we, how, why we believe what we believe, you know, just like the sort of the legs to a table, support a table. So I really enjoy looking into the reasons that go to sustain why we believe what we believe. Um, and then really in trying to find new and helpful ways of sharing that knowledge with others, particularly with people who don't share our Christian faith. Um, I think there is so much out there in the world um, that we can understand and we can learn of that point to God. Um, and that's not just in the areas of ethics and morality, it's in everything from culture to art to the natural beauty of the landscape. You know, that's pointed, as, as sort of referenced the scriptures, it all points to the handiwork and the glory of God. And so a lot of my life and my worldview is shaped up by that knowledge of the word being present, being incarnate. That's what we really mean by by, by God becoming incarnate, becoming enfleshed in, in the world. Um, that provides so much material to wonder at. And I think that, uh, well, I hope really for, for my life that I can always be captivated by that and I can hopefully share some of that interest and that captivation with others to hopefully lead them closer to Christ. And is that, apart from your family background, is there a particular thing about the Catholic faith versus other types of Christian faith that really resonates with you? Yeah, I think for, for me it's, it's been the, the uh, great confidence in both revelation and in the human mind and, and thought and philosophy that's really drawn me to uh, the Catholic faith. I mean, both, both in the sense that it seems to me to be greatly confident, as, as the previous Pope John Paul II wrote in an uh, encyclical on this particular topic, on faith and reason, that both of these uh, ways are ways of understanding truth, like the two uh, spirits upon, sorry, the two wings upon which the human heart soars the contemplation of truth. There's always been a, a great uh, sort of confidence, um, notwithstanding the obvious difficulties that original sin paints on both, our, on, on both our intellect and will. And we struggle to do the right thing and we also struggle to understand the right thing, right? That's sort of common to us. But that we do have this beautiful capacity to wonder, to ask questions, to inquire. And that the faith uh, that we receive and that's handed down from Christ to us and that we that we um, that we read and, and pray over in the scriptures is not something that tries to stop that, but that basically fills that out and purifies it uh, and encourages it to go on wondering, to go on questioning, to go on thinking. Um, and looking back over the Catholic tradition, seeing that level of 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 depth and and trust in 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 God's word and in sort of plumbing the depths of that. 
through the ages, whether it be sort of you know high water marks like figures like Thomas Aquinas in the in the medieval time, has has given me uh, you know great inspiration in in trying to understand Christ and understand all that He taught us even more. And that's been something that's been very attractive um, to me about the Catholic Christian faith. Great. And I'm wondering if there's a particular Bible passage or story or even biblical figure that has been really significant for you personally in your journey? Yeah, I've always been sort of captivated by the, uh, you know, the line that Christ says to set out into the deep um, to the apostles when they were fishing. Um, and that, that idea of sort of setting out, of sort of going out beyond the confines, really trusting in the Lord and doing as much as we possible, as uh, much as we can, to, to bring others the good news has always been something that's um, that I've found quite profound and moving, and also missionary. You know, it's uh, and this is one of the things that uh, separates us somewhat from uh, the covenant of the Old Testament with the with the Jews, which was. You know, it tends to separate why there isn't so much of a sort of missionary or evangelical zeal amongst the Jewish community is primarily because the covenant was understood to be a covenant with the Jewish people, the chosen people. Um, what relationship the Gentiles, you know, the non-Jews had with God, it wasn't always quite quite clear. Well, I guess we're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, which is sort of the Jewish understanding. Uh, the new covenant that Christ came uh, to bring was not a covenant with one particular people. It was... A covenant with all mankind uh, together and that shows why Christians are much more missionary we want to bring the good news because it's not just something that we should have you know hide under a bushel and you know retreat into remnant communities when things get tough and sort of think okay well the whole rest of the world's going to hell with a handbasket and let's just sort of you know uh, cave up here and fortify ourselves that's not what we do we set out into the deep we, 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 uh, we go back to those places where people may have been raised in the faith and have sort of lapsed and fallen offside, and we try to give them a compelling story, a compelling reason, a compelling account, primarily by our own lives, really, our own witness, um, which we hope to embody after the witness of Christ, as to the, to the beauty within the Christian faith. Um, and so, yes, that set out into the deep has, has sort of motivated me intellectually to set out into the deep to try and understand these things further. It has motivated me in terms of the events that I coordinate, whether they be through the chaplaincy here or through the Institute as well, or through my work, uh, working for, with young adults in, in New York City, um, to really just sort of think outside the box in, in ways that we can bring people the beauty of the Christian faith. And so that's probably the one particular verse, amongst many others, but mm. that I, I tend to sort of go back to when I'm thinking about these things. Fantastic. And just to finish off then, what are your hopes and dreams for the future? <laughs> My hopes and dreams for the future? Well, I... Uh, I hope within the next few weeks to submit my master's degree. I'm sort of at the tail end of a uh, 60,000 word master's thesis. So I hope that that gets accepted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be a hope and hopefully it's not a dream, um, but uh, that'll be granted. And then I really hope to do a bit more teaching. Uh, I, would, I, I really enjoy uh, teaching undergraduates, particularly uh, in all different fields. Uh, it's so much a time when you're that age where uh, your mind is sort of open to thinking about things and uh, I get great enjoyment out of having wonderful conversations with with um, with kids in different schools about lots of areas of, of the Christian faith um, and then I, I hope to be able to you know contribute uh, in some of those public ways that you know you mentioned before that Catholics get involved in public and political life not so much probably myself as a as, as a politician but hopefully this are uh, transcript won't be held against me in future years times if I did decide to run for some office uh, but uh, but I, I really think I I enjoy and appreciate getting involved in difficult contemporary issues in the public square and I hope that I can contribute effectively to those by trying to find ways of presenting the Christian worldview in public publicly accessible reasons that show that they're not only compelling accounts for why what we believe, we what we believe, but also more compelling, more persuasive, and more attractive 
than anything else that's on offer out there. And I really do believe that's true. I just don't believe that by faith. I know that by faith, but I also know that through studying the best that's been thought and said from people who hold different views on all these issues, that our views are far superior. It doesn't mean that they're always accessible, you know, really quickly like that, but um, we can have great confidence that we not only believe things that are true, but they're also true, good, and beautiful. And if we have confidence in that and confidence in Christ, then we can give that account and give people, as it says in Peter, a, a reason for the hope and joy that is within us. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.